What's up, everybody? Exhaust is back, and we're here to talk about school shootings. It is June 17th, and I am here with Jeff Schollenberger and Kat D, aka Default Friend, and we're going to discuss two magnificent articles they wrote about the tragedy in Uvalde, but also sort of the cult of the school shooter more generally and what they symbolize, what they mean to us today, because it seems like a lot of people are busy offloading their own bad feelings on othering these guys. So thank you two for joining me. Thank you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> so also I should I should comment that Kat and I are doing this in person in Chicago. We live here now and we still haven't quite figured out the timing or vibe. I don't know how to hang out with people after living in LA and living in the pod and eating my bugs. So if it's a little awkward, that's on me. But I thought we could start by sort of, for those who haven't read your pieces, which by the way, guys, you can go into the show notes and read them. They're brief, they're solid, do take the time. If we could sort of have you guys recapitulate what your pieces were about. So maybe Kat, would you want to go first? Sure. So my article came after staring into the abyss of a shooter's digital footprints for several months, which culminated in a podcast a series about Adam Lanza, who treated the, the Newtown shooting, his digital footprint in particular. But I noticed that almost every single person with sort of the exception of Nicholas Cruz, who was a shooter behind Parkland, had this very like nihilistic, straightforwardly anti-life philosophy. Even the people who were like so-called like alt-right white supremacist shooters, they really like they were angry at God and angry at their parents for, for you know, giving them life. And they, they just, I mean, it, it was interesting because comparing it to like the jokes that seem like pretty prevalent among like millennials and zoomers about that, you know, like life is meaningless, men are trash. I may as well kill myself. It seemed like just taking this attitude seriously and bringing it to its natural conclusion. So my article is sort of exploring like, what about our environment has this sort of dark anti-life, you know, message that encourage, not encourages, but allows people who are predisposed to violence to, to justify it in that way. Yeah, exactly. I thought, I mean, I, isn't it, I think it's Eric Harris that has the natural selection shirt on when he goes to commit the Columbine killing. There is this sort of like weeding out ideology that they have of themselves, of everyone else. I mean, you had that fantastic conversation with Blithering Genius, the author of the essay, The Ghost of Adam Lanza, which will also be in the show notes, guys. And one of the things that he pointed out is that philosophically, there's like no way Lanza could have seen what he was doing as delivering harm. Instead, he saw it as delivering mercy. And like, that is a completely pitch black worldview that I want to say more about. But before that, Jeff, let's talk about yours. You had your characteristic, sophisticated Girardian take on school shootings as a type of like, pagan sacrifice our society is engaged with, with all of the discursive rituals that take place in its fallout. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, it was really fascinating to encounter Kat's piece because it felt like a, an interesting convergence, although we also sort of, I think, started, you know, had different starting points and to some extent took it in different ways, but I think there's a lot of interesting of implicit dialogue here and you know i i'm not sure i really discussed the the question of nihilism explicitly but you know it, it, i'd say it's pretty fundamental to to what i'm trying to think about here too and i think you know the starting point was in a way that there are already all of these discussions of this phenomenon of mass shootings that evoke the or i should say invoke the you know historical phenomenon of human sacrifice and in the case of incidents like Uvalde and, and Sandy Hook, child sacrifice, right, which is, is sort of seen as the ultimate horror, right? The, you know, it's, it's sort of the ultimate taboo. Just as an aside, before this, we were just chatting about David Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future, which I recommend people read my friend Adam Lehrer's piece on, on 
on that in his safety propaganda substack because he notes that you know one of the really you know Cronenberg always goes for shock but one of the one of the opening moments of it involves the the sort of murder of a child right on screen so this is really you know one of the last kind of taboos right so in any case, the sacrificial reading of mass shootings that you found prior to my own was essentially this kind of liberal notion that the only way to explain this was that the gun had become a kind of cult or fetish object and that there was kind of this sacrifice to the, the, the cult of the gun, right? That, that these lives were being surrendered up to the cult of the gun. So you know, I, I suppose my argument is that there, there's not, there's not, even though that's, you know, quite tendentious, there's, there's not nothing to that idea, because I think the, the sort of basic idea that there's a sacrificial pattern at work here, and, and even a kind of sacrificial aura surrounding this type of event is correct. And I'd say particularly, it's, it's correct in terms of the sense of kind of helplessness and the, the sense of a kind of, some kind of overpowering force that seems to repeatedly, you know, bring these events about without us really being able to exert any kind of societal control over them, as if they embody, as Maureen Dowd, you know, not a particularly insightful columnist generally, but, you know, she, but she has this rem remarkable statement in, in her essay on Uvalde, America is not a mythical kingdom ruled by fickle gods or black magic. Our fate is not in the stars. And yet what I would say is that when these things happen, it's as if that is the case, right? It's as if there is some kind of sinister deed at work here. And if you think about the famous images of child sacrifice in myth that are sort of central to Western mythology, that hark back to a time when the sort of cultures that, you know, were the progenitors of the West, you know, sort of themselves renounced this, this particular practice, which was quite widespread in many cultures. You know, what, what happened was, you know, the, the, the characters like Agamemnon or Abraham, you know, essentially felt themselves carried away by this force that they couldn't resist, right? And so, you know, I, I think there's just some, something about the sense of helplessness of, of being, you know, even though we believe we are not in a magical kingdom ruled by fickle gods, when we experience these events, it's as if we're kind of transported back to that sort of worldview and sensibility. So, you know, that's kind of the, the initial intuition that, you know, that there is something to this, but it's not simply a cult of the gun. It's, it's something actually, you know, much more profoundly related to ancient societies and these kind of archaic rituals that emerged out of them. And the second kind of main inspiration for this thought is that often it would seem that the, sh and perhaps Kat could, I mean, you, you've dug more into the, you know, literature that these people have produced, but, you know, often they seem to regard themselves as well as their precursors or the, the people who, you know, the previous shooters who they're imitating as a kind of martyrs or, you know, almost saint-like figures, you know, that there was, you know, I remember, you know, seeing this stuff about like, for example, Elliot Roger, you know, who's kind of represented as, you know, in these like icon, he's sort of memified into this icon and like represented as a saint. So, and like the, you know, the Columbine shooters as well become these kind of cult figures who resemble, you know, again, these kind of figures of martyrdom or, or you know, other, other kinds of religious iconography and, and imagery comes to surround them. So my second thought was, it seems that in some cases, these, these, the people who perform these acts seem to regard themselves as, as doing something sacred in some sense. And so that, you know, is, is the second sense in which I, you know, it's as if they themselves kind of self-consciously may believe they're engaged in a kind of, you know, a, a kind of sacrificial rite. So those are, you know, I guess the two main claims that I make. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I would go a bit further, but that, that has to do with the whole point about life. But I mean, I'm also kind of curious if Kat, like, cause you've dug more into the, the actual literature these people have produced. So I'm curious if you have thoughts about this idea that somehow the self-conception is performing some kind of sacred rite or Something along yeah, those lines, I mean, if that if that makes sense based on what you've read. I, I don't know if it's a if it's sacred, but I think there's something to it. The the way that that most, most not all school shooters 
uh, view Eric Harris and, and Dylan Klebold is very similar to the way someone might regard a K-pop band. It's a very fanish engagement. They are in a fandom. It's called the true crime community. A very mystic name. I mean, Salvador Ramos, who was behind Valde, this wasn't publicized, but someone dug up, he had a Pinterest board dedicated to Adam Lanza and of course, you know, the, the Columbine kids. And they're, they're, they're all, they're all Columbiners with very few exceptions. I haven't picked up on like a religious subtext to it at all, but it is, I mean, it, it's like they believe in nothing, but sort of like their fanish engagement mm. with these you know, with these people, they role play, like, you know, they engage in like text-based role plays. Again, they have Pinterest boards, Tumblrs, fan fiction. I mean, it is, it is pretty wild. And I want to be careful not to vilify the whole community because they're not really doing anything different, but it, it, it seems as though certainly not everyone in the true crime community is violent or dangerous, but every violent and dangerous person who has committed such a crime has been part of this online community. Yeah. I just want to say like there yeah there's the mimetic quality that happens right with the fandom and things like that that seem pervasive in both of your work but the thing i couldn't stop thinking about while reading both of your pieces was the first season of true detective like which had like child sacrifice and was built into it like these pagan rites but also it drew very heavily on the work of thomas ligety who's probably most famous nonfiction work in a way is called the conspiracy against the human race which is deeply antinatalist, as was Adam Lanza, and really taps into this idea that there's, it's almost like a negative transcendence into the meaninglessness of, of life. And I don't know if I have anything further to say on that other than it really like leapt out at me that it was also, you know, the fact that like, you know, True Detective, obviously is like based off of crime pulp stuff, but so is basically the like roots of what becomes true crime with Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. You know, there's this sort of, there's something about justice or a lack of justice in the back of this as well, extrapolated to like a cosmic level with the shooters and with I think the pervasive emptiness that they feel. It's, it's interesting, though, like the type of true crime engagement is a lot different with school shooters. Like there's the true crime fans who feel like they're solving a mystery or like they're kind of, you know, it's, it's being scared. My theory is that like it's a way to sort of shock yourself back into your own body and make you more aware of your surroundings in a world that sort of is constantly sedating us. But it really has more of a like... You know, there's the, the 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 true crime fandom that you see at like CrimeCon or people who like My Favorite Murder. When they when they like worship something, it's like the podcast host who's telling the story. They want to be the storyteller. They want to be Ashley yeah. Flowers over at Crime Junkie, right? Yeah. Like the but the the other side of it is that the hybristophiles are not true hybristophiles, which is in case anyone doesn't know, like, you know, people who have like a sexual fetish for, for murderers, they, it's, it's more like the fan object is the killer. And they all say like, do not condone. Like they don't, they, they mostly aren't violent. Like they don't, they don't condone these crimes. They have this like attachment to these people. And it's, it's very different than they project themselves onto these, these characters in, in different bizarre ways. Like I have some fan art that I guess I can't pull I mean it'd be useless to pull up right now on a podcast but it's like Adam Lanza as like a trans woman in an anime style drawn by like a 16 year old kid who feels some weird affinity towards him and it's like well why are you worshiping Adam Lanza why are you a fan of Adam Lanza you could do this with like a guy from BTS which is a, a Korean pop band like there's no reason it needs to be one of these shooters, which I think is really, really interesting. And it seems to be that the people who do end up being violent, there is actually a reason why it's Adam Lanza or it's Salvador Ramos or Eric Harris. Like the attachment seems somehow more authentic than a lot of these people who just need to attach to something. Mm -hmm. Jeff, one of the things that you bring up in your piece is a lack of transcendent principles that might anchor society in a way that would sort of create a stopgap 
for this ritualized violence is at least I think that part of the implication there that per your reading of Gerard that in doing away with religious traditions we've actually just reinvented some of the things that those religious traditions seem to be attempting to solve and we're sort of adrift and I guess I'm curious to hear from both of you because nihilism is such a feature in cat space as well just like what how you see Jeff first and then Kat, the, that lack of transcendence and perhaps its origins. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I think about nihilism, I think about Nietzsche's diagnosis of the, the sort of inexorable logic of the modern world, which he sees as set in motion by Christianity, right? And, and Girard really, you know, more or less agrees with Nietzsche entirely on that. But he, you know, he calls his thought Nietzscheism in reverse because basically he accepts the, the premise that Christianity has essentially dismantled the, the sort of ordering structures of human culture that he argues came largely out of sacrifice, right? By kind of calling into question sacrifice, which I think you can see as sort of a, I mean, so, so the result is that modern, you know, people are at least ideologically, if not practically, sort of anti-sacrificial, right? So what we think that, you know, when we say something is like human sacrifice, what we're saying is that it's, you know, brutal, irrational, and barbaric, right? But, you know, Girard's assessment is, is much more complex because he regards sacrifice as having provided this kind of ordering principle, which Christianity comes in, comes in and sort of dismantles, right, you know, in a, in a kind of final and absolute way. And the results of this are that, you know, we're, you know, instead of this, but instead of this bringing peace, as Christ said, it brings the sword, right, because it, it actually disables the, the kinds of, the sort of, you know, vaccine dose of, of violence that, you know, is supposed to prevent a sort of generalized spread of violence. And so, you know, the modern world is, is the result of this, this kind of, as Gerard says, concern for victims, but we might also say, you know, this kind of valuing of, of the sort of imminent sphere of life, security, material comfort above anything else, right? And so we repudiate sacrifice in theory because we think that nothing is worth surrendering these things, right? Life, security, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, like imminent, you know, basically imminent rather than transcendent values, right? And so this, I'd say is accentuated and this kind of gets into the whole theme of the podcast in this sort of end of history period. Remember that Fukuyama, his full title is not just the end of history, but also the end of history and the last man. Who is the last man for Nietzsche? The last man is the man who lives in this world of entirely imminent sort of utilitarian values in which, you know, mere security and comfort is, is held above any, you know, higher or more transcendent values. And for Nietzsche, the, the results of this is, is nihilism necessarily. And so I suppose part of the way that I read this, and I think here's maybe the clearest convergence with Katz's analysis is that, you know, if, if we, a strange kind of diffuse sacrificial cult that's emerged, the fundamental, you know, value system of that cult is simply an inversion of this, you know, ostensible value system, right? Where we, where we claim and believe that we value, again, life, material comfort, security above all, right? And so the other point I would make here is, you know, I, I mean, the other thinker I'm kind of drawing on for this argument is Georges Bataille, who like Girard sees violence as the source of the sacred, right? He sees, he sees violence as emerging out of sacrifice. And specifically, he understands sacrifice as a form of what he calls unconditional expenditure. What this means is it's, it's essentially the inversion of any kind of utilitarian value. What it means is taking something that you value and simply destroying it, surrendering it, giving it up, wasting it, right? And so for Bataille, you know, the problem that modern societies face is that they attempt to do away with this principle of, of waste of excess of expenditure. But in, in attempting to do away with it, they kind of, you know, find it comes back in all sorts of perverse ways as a kind of return, return of the repressed. And so, you know, another way I would consider this a kind of, you know, strange, perverse, kind of nihilistic 
form of the sacred is that it simply inverts this, this fundamental value placed on <clears throat> the imminence of, of life, security, comfort, et cetera, and engages in these acts of, you know, which are, are seen as barbaric and irrational precisely because they are, they, they serve, you know, they, they can serve no imaginable purpose right there. And in that sense, they meet Bataille's definition of unconditional expenditure, right? And so that, you know, I think if, you know, trying to tie that together, you know, they're both a symptom of, of the a sort of nihilist, of the, of the nihilism generated by this kind of purely imminent value, regime of values, right? And at the same time, they're, so, so they're both a symptom of it and they represent a kind of perverse attempt to transcend it, but through this kind of negative transcendence, as I think you said a minute ago, Emmett. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, that's, it's so intricate the way that that works. I want to come back to that later, but first, Kat, you have this, I think, sort of harmonizing element towards the end of your piece where you talk about sort of the emptiness of what liberalism has come to mean and the reduction to the individual. And that is sort of the, the taproot from which this nihilism can be derived. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not not quite as as intricate. And it's it's really just people not not seeing the point, not seeing the point of living. They're not working towards anything. Like everything that we do is just a form of oppression. Language is oppression. Culture is oppression. It just, it, it's, and it's for nothing. And then they, it, they take it a step further, like, okay, what if we strip all of this away and we just allow ourselves to be our feral, natural selves? Well, you strip it away and you get to the, the primitivist self. And well, that's, what's the point of that either? What are you living for? You're just, you know, you're, you're shitting in the woods, but that doesn't, that's, that's for nothing, you know? And I mean, there's a part of me that thinks that people get to this point because they, they need to be distracted by something. They need, they need to put their faith in something. And as it stands, all that people really put their, their faith in is, you know, these, these fandoms, these, these like niche interests, but that doesn't really provide any structure to your life or give you any reason to be doing anything. Yeah. I mean, it's very sort of like, you know, 16 year old, just like wandering into a Barnes and Noble philosophy section and sort of having their first like existential crisis. But I mean, many of these guys are 16 year olds who wandered into a philosophy section, you know, usually on a forum as opposed to a brick and mortar store. But it, I, you know, it's, I, I mean, I relate with it. I was there when I was a teenager too. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting here is sort of the the taboo of of life and its excesses that Jeff was talking about through Bataille and Girard. There's this impulse in our society to reduce everything to harm reduction and bare life. The worst thing that could happen would be that you get sick or that you die or something like that. And then everything should be structured around that. And then what I think is interesting, particularly in Lanza's case, you know, there's almost this like Rousseauian nihilism, you know, where man is everywhere in chains, that you are brutally acculturated into society in a way that robs you of yourself. And, you know, I think that there is this similar reductionist impulse happening here that is scared of anything perhaps extraneous or too much in life, it's like everyone gets mugged into living. And there is, I think, a really lightning consonance between, I would say, like Lanza's perspective and the sort of like high woke, literally everything is oppression stance. And that they share, I think, similar logics and just end up at different points along the continuum of like terminuses for that logic. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, this, you know, it's, it's tricky because this notion of, I mean, I, you know, I a hundred percent agree. And I think like, you know, the, the, the other, you know, as an aside, 
obviously people now I write about sort of COVID stuff quite a bit. So this theme of bare life comes up there and has come up extensively in my writings and other people's writings about COVID, right? Where, you know, there's kind of this, this and the, the theme of human sacrifice came into the kind of polemics around COVID, right, as well, where, you know, if you, if you valued anything beyond, you know, basically preserving life from this particular pathogen that you were somehow engaged in human sacrifice, right? And this allegation was trumpeted on all sorts of headlines, right? So again, there's this kind of, you know, the, the this anti-sacrificial sensibility is basically a kind of it's it's a founding presupposition of of this this worldview that you know that again kind of as you said kind of values bare life and harm reduction I mean and sort of says that it's not, you know that it's actually irrational and and we saw we've seen this I mean we still see this proclaimed today like you know now that I don't know people everybody's like gotten COVID and. <laughs> I don't know, people generally seem less worried about it. Like they're trying to re, you know, the, the sort of real ideologues on this, they're trying to reinvoke it by like the specter of long COVID. So any, any, if, if you're, if, if you've given up worrying about protecting yourself through engaging in these kind of, again, sort of ritualized acts of hygiene, then you're, you're exposing yourself to this, you know, debilitating lifelong disease that even if it's mild now, you know, a few years from now, you're going to, you're gonna, your whole body is just gonna collapse. And they, I mean, this is like you see people saying stuff like this. So sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going a little off track here, but I, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about this is that, and, and this actually is like a, a sort of, other, I mean, my, maybe my favorite book about sacrifice of all is by Roberto Colasso. It's called The Ruin of Cash. And you know, his, his kind of critique of Girard to some extent is that, you know, the, it doesn't quite account for the ways that a, a sort of, you know, this kind of imminentist utilitarian modern society possesses its own forms of sacrifice, but it simply, it kind of mechanizes and automates them and tries to kind of keep them out. So what, what makes the, and this goes back to another point about what I think draws mass shootings close to kind of historic ritual sacrifices that they come to occupy the center of the, you know, at least for how a few news cycles, suddenly they're, they're kind of the spec spectacle that occupies the center of our attention, right? And so, you know, there are all these, actually see life as expend expendable and engage in kind of meaningless and pointless expenditure. Consider, you know, fentanyl, for example, right? Where there are all, there are all sorts of ways that we are actually you know, not the people who value life in the way that we claim or imagine we are, right? And and we could see this with COVID stuff, like there were all sorts of other, you know, addiction, you know, addiction and like overdose deaths massively increased during this period. But the, you know, the people who are obsessed with this one danger are completely willing to push that off to the side. So I guess, you know, the other thing I think is interesting here is like, it puts violent death at the center, you know, which is something we've tried to kind of keep out of our, you know, the sort of central frame of our existence, except in the realm of fiction, right? We, we can have it in the realm of fiction. But when we have a war, you know, we try to kind of, you know, like they weren't allowed to show footage of like coffins arriving from Iraq and Afghanistan, right? That's an example of it. So, you know, the, these sorts of violence that are, that are real and are fundamental to how our society operates are just kept out of sight, right? And so I guess another thing that's kind of interesting about this phenomenon is it, it forces, you know, spectacular violence back into the, the sort of central frame of our attention, right, and, and gives it this kind of symbolic power. Whereas, you know, there are all kinds of violence that are tolerated, that are, that are equally pointless and wasteful, right, but that we simply kind of push off to the side and try not to think about. We even push off different types of gun violence, like pr the predominant forms of gun violence off to the side, right. which I think is really interesting. Like nobody talks about suicides or domestic violence or, or gang violence is certainly taboo because people assume that it, gang violence is a euphemism for you know, racial conflict, which isn't the truth either. And so I think it's it's interesting that it's it's it gets everything gets kind of conflated and like, you know, wrapped into the school shooter, the, ma the mass casualty event without, you know, considering anything else, even related, related more prevalent forms. 
Well, and I yeah. think I, I just slight follow up. I mean, I think in a way, you know, in that sense, what they're doing is kind of they're kind of sending the society's message back to it, but it, it, not in the. I mean, in a way that on one hand we don't want to hear, but on another hand we do because everybody kind of you know, as whenever one of these things happens, it's it's and this is another way that it resembles a sacrifice. It kind of assembles the entire society around it as a spectacle, right? Just as you know, a sort of priest performing a sacrifice would, you know, essentially gather an entire community around. And so it, 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 it sort of shows that it, it, I think it, it, it in some way kind of exposes the contradictions of our own, you know, self-conception and, you know, the way that our, our supposed dedication that everybody in one way or another claims that they share to just kind of the the fundamental value of life is, is in fact, you know, that, that there's this, there's this darker underside that we try not to acknowledge and that through these acts we're kind of forced to, but, but then in various ways, they're kind of then reframed through standard ideological narratives that I think, you know, obscure the, the deeper, the deeper issue at stake. Right. I just wanted to sort of say, or, or ask, if I think, Pat would have a way better understanding of the three of us, like the extent to which the, like their self-consciousness as somebody who's about to become a spectacle and how that features in. Like, is there a desire to also become a fan object in the way that Klebold and Harris have become? Or are they just not even operating at that level? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that some of them who, you know, think of St. Elliot Roger or whatever in their fandoms before they do an act, don't imagine that they might be brought into similar stardom, for lack of a better term. I mean, I don't know. What what have you seen? I mean, I think there's there's three, there's three different expressions of it. You know, this sort of St. Elliot path where it is sort of a way to honor the the shooter that they, that they favor which i guess it is you know it is a sacrifice like jeff was then there's the the psychopathic ones do want to be stars and they're actually more rare than you think so like eric harris is one of them another is nicholas cruz nicholas cruz very explicitly said and again he he was the the school shooter at parkland in in south florida he very explicitly says i am going to be famous you are going to know my name i am going to hurt you. Salvador Ramos had this too. And it's what I think is really interesting about them also is there's like very like 4chan sort of chaos to their like belief system. Like they're, they kind of are like the Joker almost. And then there's sort of the third kind, which is more subdued, which is like the, the Adam Lanza. Like he doesn't want to be famous and he's also not sacrificing at the altar of, of Columbine he's just like, we need to burn it all down. This is a, this is a darkness that we should not be enslaved by. And that, I think, I mean, they all share this sort of anti-life, anti-civilization, anti-culture point of view, but it gets expressed in these three very different ways that lead to the same, the same conclusion. Yeah. I mean, It's, I've spent like some time looking at sort of a little bit of the digital footprints of these guys, mostly with the Columbine shooters, because I was very interested in Eric Harris as somebody who like designed Doom levels in his spare time, which are not available for download anymore, but are also known as being like notoriously shitty to play by those that have done them like very hack work. And what I think is sort of like fascinating to me about how some of them see themselves is that there is really this like, there really is no other way out. Like I was thinking about the movie, what is it called? Like Badlands with uh, Martin Sheen in, uh, in it. And, you know, after they go on this like wild killing spree as a couple, you know, the sheriff on, I think, a bus or plane asked Martin Sheen, he says, you know, like, basically, what's the fucking deal, pal? And he responds, I just wanted to be an individual. You know, and I think that, like, especially taking a look at that movie in, like, the 70s, when you sort of see, like, sort of post-Warhol's factory, and you get changing ideas of fame, and you get a shift in, like, the general media saturation of society. 
I think that there is like for the ones who are more psychopathic and want stardom or the ones who are simply honoring those that have become these types of dark stars, that is like what transcendence is available. You know, like that is like as close as you can get to a nihilistic transcendence, you know, like there's like the consonance between like Achilles contemplating whether he's going to live a long peaceful life or be remembered forever for dying in battle um, and how some of these young men like see their names represented throughout time. It's like very alarming to me. I don't know how to like I mean, synthesize I that. I think but. That, that, you know, what you just described is sort of like the central conflict of most like, at least like, you know, like upper middle-class, middle-class millennials, which it's like, yeah, I could set myself on fire and you know, like self-immolate in public and, you know, a variety of different ways and be remembered even just for a moment. Mm-hmm. Or I could just get the normal office job and lead a shitty life. And if I'm lucky, find love, I probably won't. But, what you know, like whatever. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's the same thing that drives people to become like a Trisha Paytas. And if you don't know who she is, she's like a YouTube personality who's, who's very famous in certain circles and has become a multimillionaire, but at the same time does nothing but humiliate herself. And there's so many characters like this who are traditional celebrities, but also internet celebrities. That's what TikTok offers you. That's what Twitter offers you. The, the journalist who has a meltdown, but will not be an obscure journalist, right? Like we know, we all know who Felicia Sumnes is. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, she's a laughing stock, but you know, set yourself on fire and people will notice you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I was just going to say, it's interesting that, you know, I mean, people have mentioned, I mean, obviously, like, this is not a new point, but, you know, one way you have to understand this is, I mean, it's a specific cultural phenomenon. That's another point I make as to its kind of sacrificial character, because when you think of sacrificial cultures, you know, they tend to do stuff that other people come and find kind of horrifying or weird or inexplicable, right? And so, you know, I think that's just the, the American specificity of it. And this is why the gun, the cult of the gun thing doesn't doesn't quite work, just because if, if what you mean is just that there are a lot of guns and there is a lot of gun violence, that's insufficient in its, exp, in its explanatory power, right? There were guns before this kind of thing happened. There are many other countries that are more, that have as many or more, you know, or or have a lot of guns that are more violent than ours, but they don't have the specific type of act, at least, I mean, they might occasionally, but they don't have it as a kind of regular kind of ritualized periodic feature of public life. And so, you know, I think it, it is fundamentally a cultural phenomenon rather than just, I mean, and, you know, people also point out, well, and going back to what Kat said, it's, you know, in in terms of the actual incidence of gun violence, it's, you know, sort of one, you know, less than 1% of the sort of total victims, right? But there, you know, but but I think, you know, to me, that suggests that, you know, it's it's not a good stand-in for that problem as a whole, right? It's it's instead a different kind of problem. I mean, it's it's not a good stand-in for generalized gun violence, because it's, 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 it's too quite, quite distinct and it's, and it's too, it's too rare in a sense. Right. I mean, it's, and so, but, you know, I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting is like, you know, there are these kind of mimetic cultural patterns that, I mean, you know, I've been interested in like what happened to serial killers, you know, why did they, why were they so ubiquitous and then went away? I mean, another interesting case, which was so central in, in cinema was uh, the spree killer. Now it makes sense, and you brought up Badlands. I mean, it makes sense that this would be a cinematic theme because basically you can't, it's it's like hard to imagine a whole movie. I mean, even though it would, you know, the main reasons are probably just that the, the taboo is around, you know, representing these people as human beings, but, you know, it would be hard to make a whole movie about a sort of singular event like this, but the spree shooting creates a nice kind of narrative arc, right? That, you know, where you have the kind of rise and fall of this I don't think couple or whatever. Not. And so, what's um, that? I'm sorry to interrupt you. I actually think they are represented in media all the time in ways we don't even clock as them being represented. It's going to sound weird, but like Fifty Shades of Grey, Dexter, that, you know, the, the male leads in those, they are Eric Harris, right? You know, that famous <laughs> yeah. last psychiatrist post about narcissists or like, the, or was it the, psycho, the psychopath? He talks about the Sopranos. To me, that is how we are constantly over and over and over again, deifying 
Eric Harris in a, in a cinematic way. I mean, it's, yeah, sure. and, I mean, it, 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 to the extent that like, there's a whole phase where like women were like, oh, psychopaths are so sexy. And it was like a kind of cultural joke and it's actually really fucked up. I mean, it's super weird. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I remember there was Ray Pettibone who used to do the Black Flags album covers and flyers. One of them has a very handsome serial killer being dragged away by the cops and a bunch of women like fawning over him as he's done, you know, and I think like, I mean, I was also thinking about the movie Elephant, which like attempts to tell the story of two Columbine youths. I haven't seen it in a long time, but, you know, I wonder if Jeff, listening to you, there are also like iterations of like, they're like zeitgeist types of killers. Right. Right. So it's like yeah. the spree killer or the serial killer in the seventies seems to me like culturally is speaking to like sort of the rupture that the sixties, seventies and early eighties represented or have come to mean, you know, and the alienation of the city you know, I mean, Jack, that's sort of, there's sort of like a long trajectory there from like Jack the Ripper in England sort of embodying the horrors of the newly industrialized city that brings all these anonymous people together. But there is something that's remarkably like, and I guess this is sort of what I was trying to gesture towards with my Eric Harris being like an online doom dude, is that there's something like really internet to me about the school shooter. Like, even though we have like some that predate it like really seems to represent the dark emptiness that the digital world has brought into our lives. That's totally right. Because like with the serial killer, the state kills them usually, right? Mm -hmm. They die by the death penalty. They are redeemable. Their life is in their hands. The school shooter always kills himself. Almost always. It's very, very rare that he even gets killed by police or that he ends up in jail. Like I can, you know, there's maybe like three examples, James Holm, Nicholas Cruz, who's a third, maybe Andrew Blaze. I don't, I don't have the, the Rolodex <laughs> memorized yet. You don't have the card deck? But they, the school shooter gets sucked back into the abyss. The physical body is totally gone. And all we have left is their memory and what we create of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like ripe for memification. They're like ready to be reblogged, you know? That's, like, I, I don't know, I'm laughing. <laughs> no, yeah, and that's, I think that's a really great way of putting it. You know, I, I think, and I think maybe like, I don't know, Jeff, what do you think about that? I mean, so one movie, I, I'd say maybe the last great spree shooter movie. Oh, no, I think there have been others, but the one that I think of as kind of pivotal in this, which I mentioned in my piece is natural born killers, which is also the most meta, right. In terms of how it, I mean, and it's interesting in relation to the discussion of like, yeah, but Kat, I mean, it's, you know, it's very much about fandom, right. It's explicitly, I mean, it has this, you know, it, 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 it has the Robert Downey Jr. character who's kind of this like, you know, true crime journalist. So it's, but it's very much of the television era. But it it seems like it really, you know, it sort of culminates the the spree killer genre. Mm-hmm. And then I, I and then it also kind of comes right before the watershed of of Columbine. And so I think it 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 really, you know, it it even though it's it still kind of comes at the end, I mean its aesthetics are very MTV and but it's it's a fascinating one that kind of comes right at that that sort of pivotal moment. Well, I think it's the perfect transition from like aesthetically from the spree killer to the school shooter only because like I said, like down to the soundtrack, like there was nobody who was a bigger like doom online PVP guy than Trent Reznor, whose burn is like, you know, a centerpiece, almost the manifesto song that plays in that movie. I mean, some of the lyrics are like, you know, I reject your society. You know, it's like really adolescent, straightforward diary entry stuff about being alienated. And like, it's, like you said, it's an artifact of television era, but it seems even through the industrial music, which is like really heavy and heavily influencing like cyber culture in the early nineties, like as an on-ramp to where we are now. Like, I mean, it's really like, that's how I see it anyway. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's it's undeniable given the connection between natural born killers and Columbine. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, but th- talking about this is getting me thinking like we have this, you know, spate of sort of like 
I don't know, like kind of hot topic murderers. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean though. Uh, well, but, yeah. then, but then we get, but I think, you know, it's it's like around like Virginia Tech, 2006, I, I remember walking into Algebra 1 and being like, whoa, a bunch of people were just murdered in Virginia. So that's how I, I think I remember 2006. But we, the, the killers start becoming kind of weirder, like more sort of like feminized in a way. James Holmes of Aurora, Colorado has sort of like a weeaboo quality to him. Jared uh, Loughner, sort of a weeaboo quality. Like they become more sort of 4chan, which I think is the other kind of pivot point. So I almost think there's two eras of school shooters. We have the the trench coat mafia type. And then we have the ones who worship the trench coat mafia types. And they're more like looking at like anime child porn on their phones as before they walk into a, an elementary school and yeah. ruin everyone's life. No, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think that that's sort of like the interesting on-ramp or the interesting relationship between like 90s alt culture and then what becomes of our internet culture. Like I hate to, I mean, like this is part of this also, I think, and Kevin, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know what you guys think about this. This is the thought I just had. Maybe it's kind of crazy is I wonder if, you know, Mark Fisher's whole thing is that we're basically all plagued with a certain level of nostalgia due to modernism slowdown into postmodernism and its fracture. I mean, it's a really like hack job of explaining what Fisher's on about, but like, I wonder also if there isn't like this operant aesthetic nostalgia that happens for some of these kids who are looking at the Eric Harris and Columbine sort of canon, you know, when they see it. Like there, like there's something that is like incredibly powerful and of its time and place of the infamous lunchroom security cam footage of them walking through with their t-shirts and their backwards cadet caps and like their tech nines or whatever they were that like seems very much of that moment. And I, I just wonder for the inner subjectivity of some of these kids who admire Harrison Klubold and then go on to do it, if there isn't also a participation in the pervasive nostalgia we experience as a society. I, I, I think that I'll, I'll stop real I'll, I'll let I'll let Jeff go, but I mean, I think there is, and you see that a lot in the, the true crime more hybristophile side of the fandom. I saw a thread, I don't remember if it was on Tumblr or if it was on Twitter, and it was like school shooters if they worked at the mall. And it was like pictures of like Adam Lanza would work at Auntie Anne's and you know Nicholas Cruz would would work at what was it, Dick Sports or something. I mean it was just like they're so wrong and they're what they're there. You know, Andrew Blaze would work at Hot Topic. And it was it was a really weird thing. And I was like oh my God, they, whoever wrote this, it's more than just sort of this like fanish categorization, personality quiz expression. It's like they associate these crimes with the mall, probably with their childhood. And it's like this weird sort of mush of like the late nineties, you know, early two thousands up into, you know, the early 2010s where it's just like, this is what life was. And now it's quarantined and on the internet and there is no brick and mortar anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a little bit of a, a detour, but in relation to nostalgia, I don't know if either of you have started the, the new Stranger Things season, but you know- Yeah, it, I've already it, finished it, it but <laughs> Okay, yeah. It, anyway, I, I have not finished it yet, but I'm, I'm like halfway through. But anyway, so when you when you turned it on, you saw the warning at the beginning that yeah, basically it was Uvalde. released right after Uvalde. It begins essentially with this, you know, massacre perpetrated at this facility where basically, you know, the deep state is trying to train children to essentially become like long distance assassins, right? But who can, I mean, it's very much like a Cronenberg scanners basically. It's like, the, you know, they're, they're basically being trained in, you know, telepathy and mind control and all those kinds of things. And, you know, I guess what's kind of interesting, I mean, so obviously Stranger Things is this embodiment of contemporary nostalgia culture. And the fact that it, you know, it essentially converged such that it, you know, it came out opening with this like scene of a massacre of children, you know, you know, just sort of within the week that all day had happened. So, I mean, there's something about the kind of weird kind of circuits of the cultural imagination there. But then the other thing that I think is, you know, that 
all of this goes back to for me is, you know, there are various kind of conspiratorial paths you can go down and thinking about all, a lot of these people and, and the kind of genesis of this type of violence and kind of tying it to the, the fantasies of the American deep state, right, which, which actually did attempt to, you know, turn people into just killing machines, right? That was an explicit aim, right, of various of these kind of secret projects. And so they, they were essentially trying to, you know, form a new type of subject, right? And this was a Cold War project, right? A, a new type of subject who would just be a kind of, you know, someone capable of going and massacring a bunch of children, right? Without remorse. And so this was an explicit project of the American state, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is kind of remarkable, right? And so, you know, just kind of free associating here a bit, I mean, a couple of days after Uvalde, people started noticing there was this flight from Fort Hood to Uvalde that had suspicious timing. I don't know if either of you saw this, but that, you know, there was a flight out of Fort Hood. Now, Fort Hood was itself the site of a mass shooting. And as it happens, Killeen, Texas, which is where Fort Hood is, was also the site of a different mass shooting. And so there was the 2009 shooting on the base. There was also a mass shooting there in 1991 at a, like a luncheonette. So, you know, it's as far as I know, the only small town that's had two. It happens to also be located right next to one of the largest military bases. So, you know, if you think about Stranger Things, it's, you know, it, it's just this kind of weird phantasmagoria that drives you a little bit crazy when you, when you think about it too much. Mm -hmm. You know, because essentially Stranger Things is about this small town where there's this profoundly evil deep state project underway that does involve trying to train ruthless, you know, basically a human killing machine. So it's, it's a very weird, you know, so to me, the nostalgia actually goes back all the way to, I mean, it's, it's a very dark kind of nostalgia because it, it actually goes back to these earlier Cold War fantasies that were kind of the underbelly of, of American empire in that period. And that, you know, regardless of whether we want to claim that any of these killers have themselves been, you know, some kind of, you know, products of some kind of psyop is, is sometimes claimed or of some kind of brainwashing or mind control is sometimes claimed for Kaczynski or you know if we just want to say there you know it somehow is like there's a lab leak by which a lot of this leaks out into the cultural zeitgeist and so ultimately the goal of creating these inhuman killing machines is in some sense achieved so anyway I was just going to say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. And if you look at a lot of the conversations that have come out, you know, sort of the, con, you know, conspiracy theory and leaving aside sort of the InfoWars tier ones, like just off the bat, I don't mean that. But if you look at the conversations around starting at Columbine, it's, it's all, it, it does have this very sort of like Cold War quality to it. And they just say pop up without fail at, at every single event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's that. Cool. who is this cop in this photo? Like he matches some other photo. I've gone through some very deep like threads and stuff on like, was the FBI involved? Were they not? And of course there was immediately like all that speculation in Uvalde as well. I mean, it, it did make me think, you know, to, to reference another piece of media, the movie Suspect Zero, which I don't know if either of you have seen, but it's sort of like, a, I really think it's sort of a precursor to True Detective season one. The basic plot is that there is this guy played by Ben Kingsnorth, who has this ability to almost like transport his mind to wherever a serial killer is doing something. He'll draw it out and find them or whatever. If he listens to a certain tape, he's part of like a, a Phoenix program or something like that that's run by the government. And Aaron Eckhart plays a detective who seemingly has inherited this ability without knowing it. And Eckhart is chasing Kingsnorth thinking that he's because uh, Kingsworth becomes a serial killer in his own right, killing these basically child killers. But there is this one, the suspect zero, that is made possible by American infrastructure, by the shipping and trucking industry, that seems to go randomly from town to town, like with no discernible pattern, with no geographical set thing, like eliminating children or capturing them or something like that. And the plot is sort of centers around their, the cat and mouse between them and their inability to find the suspect zero that's hunted down. And I think like to bring that to what we're talking about in terms of like the negative transcendence 
the sort of deep state quality, the idea that there's almost this other dark, like Lovecraftian psychic realm at the bottom of our entire society. And, you know, the absolute like lack of stopgap or lack, lack of any way to point to anything beyond bare life to ask you both like one big question, which is that both of you discuss a lack of transcendental values or meaning in your pieces, do you think it is possible to find those again in a very secularized society that already, as you've both kind of outlined, have entrenched ideologies hostile to that project in its basic essence? Big question, Jeff, you wanna take it? <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask you the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm probably too much of a doomer here. I mean, I will say that, you know, I, I think the only, the only positive thing we can say here is that there are kind of cultural cycles and, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, you mentioned Fisher, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that, that sort of thesis needs to be revised in various ways. And I think we've talked about this before even, but, you know, there, there is some kind of sense of being stuck in this particular cultural cycle and unable to get past it. And so, you know, I think that, is it possible to, I mean, I, I think various people are trying to, you know, reorient the culture in various ways, but, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I see anything in particular that stands out as a, as a promising path beyond any of this, you know, I, and, and I think, you know, it's, what, what all of this shows to me is that there is, and, you know, this goes back to the point just about fandom and about, you know, there, there's in a sense just a desire to find kind of idols or figures to elevate and, and give your existence some kind of orientation, right? And so this is, you know, it, it shows that the, the sort of impulse towards transcendence is, you know, we, we never have, have gone beyond that, right? It, it still remains with us. And so then the question is, you know, where, what is the realm where that impulse can be directed, right? I think, you know, part of the problem at the moment, I would say, is that when it isn't directed towards pop culture, it's, it tends to be directed towards sort of, you know, essentially, I mean, increasingly towards like electoral politics. And, you know, there are various reasons why that seems like a dead end to me. And so I don't know what the other paths are, but I think you know, there is just a need for a kind of, a kind of exit from much of what is, it has been sort of substituted for the realm of values and, and just a, a need to kind of, you know, withdraw sort of mentally and emotionally from a great deal of that and try to create collectives in which, you know, values can kind of be reassessed. So, you know, I think I, I'd, I'd say my only positive statement here is like, I, I do, I do feel like maybe more people are doing that now, but I don't know where any of it's going to lead. So, I, I I think there's some some good ideas. Like I I think sort of like the various you know Christianity larpers that exist are directionally correct. The problem is like they don't re like they you know it's it's they're they're the first wave of that, so they're kind of like too much on a stage. And they're not going to be saved. They're just, you know, if, if you're saying you're, you're Catholic or whatever, and then going on to do whatever you were still doing, that's not going to make a difference. But there's something about like that kind of reaction that I think is like, they're headed on the right path. I think it's going to take several generations of trying and failing that. And then, but then that's the question, is that scalable? Will it happen? It, it's enforceable, obviously, no, no, and no. Is the internet going away? Should it? Yes, it should. No, it won't. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess I guess I don't really have a good answer then, just that I think people should should find find Jesus and they won't. So, in the end. <laughs> what, about, what, about, what about Mormonism? Mormons are good because, like, you get them early. You, you, you know, like, they lots of children, they have their own social infrastructure. Maybe maybe we'll all just sort of burn out and the Mormons will be the, the last true Americans. Yeah. I mean, it is sort of like the, uh, next to Scientology, like the true American religion. Just to sort of not put it all on you guys and to 
sort of conclude and take in everything you've said about this. I mean, obviously the theme of the show is why nothing feels possible. So in order to keep the show going, I can't answer it in full, even though I do have the answer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think I share the the pessimisms and I definitely share like Kat's appraisal of the directionally correct movement towards some sort of religiosity, because I really think that this is basically like a spiritual problem. And I think that you know, it might overlap with certain cultural or political or whatever issues, but spiritual problems are difficult things unto themselves. And the only hope I have is that we seem to be litigating some pretty serious, basically theological arguments now about what it means to be human. And I think that that has really ramped up after COVID. And I think there is opportunity there, not for this sort of like, you know, <laughs> age of Aquarius, like pivot away from our techno society, but there are openings for people to figure out how they can refuge themselves through positively transcendent traditions. And that I hold out hope there. And again, I don't think that that is a solution to the fact that like healthcare sucks in this country, you know, or whatever, but one of the major problems is that there seems to be like, unless this thing is everything, it's nothing response to every single problem in our society. And I don't think that that is particularly helpful. We might want to consider these things as confined to certain domains, if not in their entirety, then in their majority. And that's the way that I've been thinking about it. So I'd like to thank you both for taking time out of your day to join me here. This has been great. I hope we can do it again, if not together, then separately. And to Exhaust listeners, we are obviously back. Patreon listeners can expect two paid-for episodes behind the paywall next month. And because I have too much damn work now, you can expect one free public episode a month. But don't worry, you'll be getting previews of the paywall stuff as well. So thanks again, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. Stay safe out there, everybody.